I next met with Dr. Heather Wakely, and to begin, she presented a 54-year-old Asian-American woman who was diagnosed with lung cancer a year ago. So I have a lot of patients with EGFR mutations just by nature of my practice in Northern California, but I was thinking particularly about an Asian-American woman who is 54 years old and was diagnosed just over a year ago. She's very fit, works out regularly, and started to notice a bit more cough and shortness of breath. Eventually got to her primary care physician. She got a chest x-ray, which looked abnormal. Long story short, she was diagnosed with stage 4 non-small cell lung cancer, adenocarcinoma, and at the time of presentation had a right-sided pleural effusion and some bone metastases. Before you go on... First of all, was she a smoker? No smoking history. And can you talk a little bit about her state of mind when she got the diagnosis when you first saw her, who was with her, and what her sort of family constellation is? So she was incredibly distraught. She came with her husband and her two sons, one of whom is still a teenager and living at home, and the other one is in college. And so he had flown in so that they could all four be there. And the tension and anxiety was palpable as we were meeting and talking with them. And she was someone who I ended up seeing a couple times a week until we had everything ready to actually get her started on therapy. What are the major molecular abnormalities that you're looking for kind of beyond the diagnosis of, in this case, adenocarcinoma? So there are only two that are truly known to be actionable first line. So for someone like this, newly diagnosed, never treated, what I want to find out quickly is whether they have an EGFR mutation that's actionable, the deletion 19 or L858R point mutation in exon 21, or if they have an ALK translocation. Because if we find either of those then that's a patient we would prefer to start on an oral targeted drug versus chemotherapy. And I guess we should clarify that we're talking about mutations within the tumor, not sort of germline throughout the body. Yes, and thank you for bringing that point up. That's something I always try to emphasize with my patients, because when we start talking about molecular changes, people immediately start thinking about, well, does this have implications for my family, for my children? And so I'm very careful to emphasize that this is a mutation in the tumor and not in the rest of the person. So in a patient like this who's a non-smoker, what's the chance that she's going to have one of these two, as you say, actionable mutations? And what about people who are smokers? So this patient, again, was a middle-aged Asian-American woman with no smoking history. So her probability of having an EGFR mutation was over well, close to 50%. In some series from Asia, non-smoking women have a 60% chance of having an EGFR mutation. And ALK translocations are also more common, we think, in patients with no smoking history, though we certainly do see them in patients with a smoking history as well. Same story with EGFR. Patients who have no smoking history who develop lung cancer have a higher probability of being found to have either EGFR or ALK, but we do see them in patients with smoking histories. The numbers there are not as easy to tease out. We just did a survey of U.S. oncologists asking them to describe their ALK-positive patients, and about a third had a heavy smoking history. 
About a third had some smoking and a third had no smoking history. I haven't seen a similar analysis looking specifically at EGFR sort of in the real world setting, but we know that a lot of patients with EGFR mutations are former smokers. So I don't use the smoking history to determine whether or not to test, but certainly it frames a discussion of the pretest probability, the likelihood that they do have that mutation and how important it is for us to wait for those results. So I want to get into a little bit of the thinking in terms of her treatment, but one more question about sort of this initial situation with her. She and her family are understandably just, you know, devastated by what's going on as you're going through this period waiting for results, et cetera. What did you do to try to help them? And what was your assessment of sort of her coping strategy and how she was likely to deal with? So what I try to do with people facing this new diagnosis is help them to understand that it's not always going to be the way that they are right now as far as their emotions around the disease and their anxiety around the disease, and to help them understand that once we're actually on a treatment plan, they're going to feel better because they're going to feel like they're fighting the disease and they are doing something about it. In that context, I also warn them that The treatment that we select for right now, which will hopefully work, isn't a cure, and that it's going to work for a period of time which is unnamed. It could be a short time. It could be a few years, depending on the therapy and the patient. But at some point, we're going to have to face making a change again in treatment, and that oftentimes those feelings of anxiety at the initial point in the diagnosis can flare up again at that point. So I try to prepare people for that. But in that context, right at the beginning to help them get through, I talk about all of the different options that we have. So we talk about the possibility, if it's EGFR or ELK, that we'll have an oral medication that will work for usually months to years, that if they don't have that, that chemotherapy can be highly effective, and that chemotherapy is usually much better tolerated than how we see it portrayed in the media to sort of encourage people that they're going to be able to get through that, that we'll be able to work on strategies to make it livable, that the goal is to keep them living as they're facing this disease for as long as possible. And then I talk about a lot of the modern advances that are happening with immunotherapy and other options to help them see that as we're ready to get started on the first-line therapy, that's just the first step, and that this is going to be a journey, and there are going to be ups and downs, and to just stay hopeful that we can't predict how much time they have, and they have to be prepared, but maintaining that hope. And just, I think, having the time to come in the office and talk and know that I'm going to keep seeing them until we have a treatment plan and are moving along with that, I think can be very reassuring. So what kind of treatment, you found out that the tumor had the EGFR mutation, what were the options that you were thinking about, and what did you actually end up suggesting to her? So for a patient with newly diagnosed advanced stage non-small cell lung cancer with an EGFR mutation, we, of course, have two options now. There's erlotinib or afatinib, both oral medications taken daily, both reasonably well tolerated with side effects of rash, diarrhea, potentially mucositis. And I think we've all gotten pretty comfortable with managing those, though the rash can be challenging at times, especially. So I ended up choosing erlotinib for her. I think afatinib is also a very reasonable option. And as far as trying to choose between the two, I don't have a strict algorithm for that. 
I will sometimes pick erlotinib more frequently because I like the combination of a fatinib and cetuximab as a next line of therapy. Though I've also seen some recent information that the combination of a fatinib cetuximab can also work after a fatinib. So that rationale maybe isn't as strong as it used to be, but for now, I will often pick erlotinib. Also, partly I've found that, at least in my experience, it's a little bit easier to tolerate for patients than the afatinib, but there's quite a bit of variability in that also. What exactly did you say to her as you were about to begin the erlotinib in terms of what to be aware of in terms of toxicity? So when I'm starting a patient on erlotinib or on afatinib, I warn them about the rash, diarrhea, fatigue, and also a more generic statement about if something's happening where you're not feeling as well, we want to know about it right away. I don't usually go into that pneumonitis risk because it's so rare, but I make sure to comment on that this is how you can call us 24 hours a day. There's someone available. You know, if symptoms are worsening, we want to know sooner. And I don't want you to tell me two weeks later that you've had a horrible two weeks. For the rare patients that have nausea, we talk about changing the timing of the medication. So in general, I advise people to take it first thing when they wake up. So we know that they've had their two hours of nothing in the stomach as a minimum, and that they then can get ready and an hour later eat the breakfast. So that we're following that empty stomach two hours before, one hour after, and try to emphasize that. Some people do prefer to do that in the evenings, but for most it's easier morning. I warn them about not eating any grapefruit, <laughs> but that otherwise there's no real food restrictions. What about the grapefruit? Well, there's a food drug interaction with grapefruit, with erlotinib, as there is with grapefruit with a lot of medications that are metabolized through the liver, through the cytochrome P453A4 enzyme. I'm like a grapefruit addict. I'm digesting one right now, actually. <laughs> Well, you you live in Florida, Neil, so of course you're going to eat a lot of grapefruit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So, and then what actually happened once she started the erlotinib? So she actually tolerated it fairly well. She did get a bit of a rash, but it was a grade one, two rash. It was something that we were able to just use some moisturizing lotion, a little bit of topical antibiotic. And as we often see, the rash develops around week one to two flares kind of at peak around week two to three, and then by week four is starting to get better on its own, at least with erlotinib. I don't see that same pattern as much with a fatinib that's a bit more persistent. What were her thoughts about having the rash? Did it upset her? Or I could imagine in some cases, maybe people feel reassured that something's happening. So there is a perception that if you get a rash, the drug's going to work. And if you don't get a rash, the drug isn't going to work. And I put that more as a myth than a reality. Unfortunately, some of my patients who have had the absolute worst rashes had no response at all. And I've also had some patients with lovely responses that have almost had no rash. And so even though the correlation is there in multiple analyses, it's not a perfect correlation. And so I reassure patients. And for those patients who believe that because I have the rash, it's working, and therefore I'm just going to suffer with this rash because it means the drug's helping, I try to re-educate them because we don't want anyone suffering with a terrible rash. And if someone's having that sort of a rash and they need a dose reduction because the oral medications and all the topicals aren't enough, it's better that they do that and not suffer. We don't know that that's lowering the efficacy of the drug. 
So what was going on with the tumor as she was being treated? So she had a great response. And so for her, her symptoms were fairly mild. She had a little bit of discomfort in her left arm at one of her bone metastases sites and a little bit of cough. And she wasn't able to exercise as well as she wanted to. So once she started the agent, she did feel that her energy was coming back. She was able to exercise more, and the pain in her arm had gotten better. And what was going on in terms of imaging? When did she get re-imaged, and what was seen? I usually look initially around eight weeks after someone started on erlotinib. I'll move it up to six weeks if they're not symptomatically better, just to make sure a little earlier that they're not one of those rare patients who don't have benefit from the drug. So her scan did show shrinkage of her main mass in the right lung. Her effusion had mostly resolved. The bone lesions are always really, really tricky to interpret. And as with most folks, her bone lesions looked a little bit worse, but she was feeling better, so it was easier to interpret. For a number of patients, it's not so easy to interpret. If they're having a dramatic response elsewhere and look like they have new bone lesions, normally I'm going to interpret that as those lesions were there, they just weren't as apparent, they weren't as apparent until they started responding and then they became more sclerotic and then they were more visible. But I've also had some patients where the bone lesions didn't respond and the other areas did. So it can be pretty confusing and you need to take that whole clinical picture into account. If the patient overall is feeling better and they're having a clear response in the soft tissue disease, it's usually easy to consider the bone disease a flare, even if it's radiographically worse. But in other settings, it's confusing. And so it ends up being a very long discussion when we get these mixed results with the bone lesions potentially looking worse. And I explain to the patients in detail, I think it's this, but we won't know for sure. We need to just watch you closely. And if you're getting more bone pain, we need to act on that. But we don't want to run away from the agent if there is ongoing benefit. Because I've had patients where that the bone looked worse the rest of them was better, and then on that next scan, it was clear that, yes, indeed, the bones were responding to. So she sounds like she's starting out pretty much the way you'd expect. She is mm-hmm. having a little bit of toxicity, and she's responding. What was her quality of life like, and what was her anxiety level? Did she start calming down a little bit? So as soon as she heard she had the EGFR mutation, she calmed down a lot, as did her family. And then once she was on the agent knew it was tolerable, was feeling better, she felt well. And they would come in very smiley, happy. You know, she felt like her life was back to normal other than just having to take this medication. Was she or anybody in her family on the internet trying to get information and then bringing it to you? They were, but in a way that led to some very good discussions. Occasionally you'll have people who have done some search on the internet and are coming in saying, well, why aren't we doing this? Most of the time, though, with a discussion and a full explanation about why that wasn't something that was part of our initial discussions, that goes well. So about how long ago did she get started on the erlotinib? So she started just over a year ago. So if she is really going to follow the course of a typical patient, that means that she maybe has progressed since then. Unfortunately, that's true. So she started to have some decreasing energy, a little bit more shortness of breath. How long into the treatment was this? It was about nine months into her therapy. Right. 
And unfortunately, at that time, imaging did show that she did have some progression in her lung. And despite having no brain metastases initially, and on an interim scan, she had also developed brain metastases at that point. They were small and treated with radiation, but that was another discussion to kind of go through the implications of that. What kind of radiation was used? She only had three small lesions, so we used stereotactic radiation. What do you see, just parenthetically, in terms of side effects with radiation therapy, whole brain versus stereotactic? So the stereotactic radiation is remarkably well tolerated. I just was seeing a patient in clinic yesterday who had that morning had her stereotactic brain radiation. She felt just a little woozy, but was completely functional. And most people feel fine. Mild headache, maybe. That's about it. I've had one or two develop a little bit of nausea, but it's remarkably well tolerated. Whole brain radiation, on the other hand, is one of the hardest things that we do to people, I think. At least that's been my impression of my patients who have gone through it. They tend to get very, very tired. Some have nausea, and they just don't feel right. And that persists usually for at least a week or two after the whole brain radiation is completed. What about problems with thinking, you know, cognitive changes? How often do you see them? When do you see them? So the worst situation of that type, I had a patient who developed significant cognitive impairment during the brain radiation. That's incredibly rare and not something that I've seen at any other time. And fortunately, she's now recovering. For other patients, though, I've had a few who about one or two years, one and a half to two years after completion of the whole brain radiation, develop a picture that's very much like a dementia. They just can't quite process things the way they used to. They're slowed down. It's a minority of patients, but it's a pretty significant issue. So this lady wasn't eligible to enter one of the many new trials out there looking at a variety of new agents. Like most patients, she got chemotherapy. Which regimen did she get? So we ended up picking carboplatin and pemetrexid. I think that's a very active combination, well-tolerated, and so that's what we ended up going with. What about bevacizumab for this patient? I thought about it for her, but even though she was symptomatic with her cough, her disease burden wasn't as high otherwise. I will use bevacizumab quite a bit, either with a taxane doublet or with pemetrexid doublet. But in her particular case, we didn't do it. And it's something we talk about. I think we've had a number of clinical trials now, which have led to no clear winner. There was the carboplatin paclitaxel bevacizumab versus carboplatin pemetrexid bevacizumab. And then we had the carboplatin paclitaxel bevacizumab versus carboplatin pem. And in both of those trials, there wasn't a clear winner. So it's led to a lot of questions of, you know, is the carboplatin pemetrexid bevacizumab really better than the other regimens or not? And so without a definite it is, while it is something I will use for a lot of patients, I'm comfortable discussing carbopem without bevacizumab. What are patients where you definitely will not use bevacizumab? And what about the fact that she had a brain met? So treated brain metastases is not a contraindication to bevacizumab. It's safe to use bevacizumab in patients with treated brain metastases. There was also a French trial for patients with very small untreated brain metastases, which showed safety even in that setting. So 
I don't think of brain metastases as a contraindication to bevacizumab. Patients with hemoptysis, definite contraindication. Patients with squamous histology, definite contraindication. Patients with very difficult to control hypertension or cardiovascular risk, I also am very, very cautious thinking about bevacizumab for those patients. So as you started her on the carbopim, what did you say to her in terms of what to expect and when to call you? So as I'm starting patients on platinum doublets, I talk about nausea and vomiting and make sure that they have medications at home. If I'm giving them carboplatin pemetrexid, I tend to have it be on an as-needed basis. If I'm using a cisplatin regimen, we have a very strict four-day, you're going to take dexamethasone on this schedule, you're going to take on dantatrone on this schedule, you know, twice daily, round the clock, just to lower those risks of having any significant nausea events, and they're also going to be taking a prepotent. For patients with carboplatin, not everyone has any real nausea, and so I leave it as a making sure they have their ondansetron and prochlorperazine at home so that they can take it just at the first hint that they might be getting nausea, but telling them they don't have to take it. And if we're using the ondansetron or similar agents, I do warn patients about the risk of constipation because that's something that can sneak up on them. So we talk about nausea and nausea management. We have a handout that we'll give to our patients as well that goes through that, making sure that they know what to do. And also with encouragement that if they actually end up vomiting, they need to call because it's really not acceptable for patients to end up with vomiting given all the excellent medications that we have to control that. I then talk about the risks for neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and anemia. For the neutropenia, the risk that I talk with patients about is just if you get a fever, call. If it's 2 in the morning, you still call because we're going to have you go to the emergency room and make sure your blood counts are okay. And we talk about the risk of the neutropenic fever that if they were to get a fever and they don't get appropriate antibiotics, that that can be a very, very serious, even fatal risk. I've had very, very few patients die from neutropenic fevers. It's generally people who believe that they're going to be able to just tough it out and for whatever reason, don't call. So I just really do emphasize that. I warn them about anemia and that we'll watch for that, that it's not a big issue for most patients with these agents, but it can happen. So kind of preparing them. We also talk about fatigue and that fatigue is a major issue for a lot of patients getting chemotherapy and not an easy one to treat. So I'll prep them that one of the best things we can do is encourage people to continue to exercise. I'm not a big fan of most of the agents that are out there to help with fatigue, just I haven't seen them work so well. So it's really, it's exercise, coming up with a kind of a strict nap schedule if they're going to take a nap so that they're not spending too much time in bed and working through that. Warn about risk of rash, lab test abnormalities, you know, just go through the list, but really with the main focus being nausea management, call with fever, and call with anything that's going on where you're just uncomfortable, because I'd rather have people calling a lot with that first cycle so they then know what to expect and are comfortable in the future, as opposed to three weeks later hearing about a list of terrible things that happened to them. So what's your sort of global strategy when you're using a platinum doublet, such as carbopem, in terms of how long you're going to continue it and switching into sort of a maintenance phase? So in general, 
I will give two cycles of a platinum doublet and rescan because I want to make sure we're on the right track. And then I will continue with two more cycles and rescan. And for the vast majority of patients, after they've completed the four cycles, that's when I'll switch to a maintenance approach. If I'm using a pemetrexid doublet, it's easy to know what to do. You just do a continuation maintenance approach that's been proven to be very effective with that agent. So you stop the carbo and keep the PEM going in a different dose? I do. I've had a couple patients where we have tried to go to six cycles, but I found that the cytopenias, especially the thrombocytopenia and the neutropenia, it's hard to get beyond the four cycles. And what about patients who you mentioned, and a lot of people do use bevacizumab, you know, a triplet approach, carbo, PEM, and Bev. What do you do there after your four cycles? So if I've ended up starting someone on bevacizumab, I will continue the bevacizumab as long as it's being tolerated by the patient and as long as we are seeing some efficacy, so disease stability. So if I start it as part of a taxane triplet, I continue just the bevacizumab. If I started it with pemetrexid so that they're on a pemetrexid bevacizumab triplet, I do continue both. What do you see in patients who are on maintenance either with PEM alone or PEM and Bev or Bev alone? So for patients on bevacizumab alone as maintenance, most of them tolerate it remarkably well. In general, any fatigue that they were suffering during chemotherapy tends to resolve. The cytopenias are gone. If they were on a taxane regimen, their hair's growing back. They don't tend to have nausea. So in general, it's pretty well tolerated. The hypertension continues to be an issue for some patients. And most folks who have issues with hypertension with bevacizumab, that's going to show up early. But sometimes it's not something we see until they're really into the maintenance and then continue to struggle with it. The other thing we're watching for closely is proteinuria, development of proteinuria. That is something that often, if it's going to happen, happens six months or even longer. And when that's going on, oftentimes you're going to have to spread out how frequently you're giving the drug or even consider stopping it. It's very rare that bevacizumab contributes to any true renal toxicity that's long-term, but that's not a zero percentage. And so I am watching their renal function and hypertension, particularly with the bevacizumab. On pemetrexid, Oftentimes, that every three-week schedule gets slipped out to an every four-week schedule because of fatigue and just making sure their counts stay up. I will dose reduce from the 500 milligrams per meter squared to 375 milligrams per meter squared, again, after some number of months to help with the fatigue, keeping the counts up. With the two together, I haven't found that that's any harder to tolerate than the pemetrexid alone. If they are on both and a toxicity starts to build up, if I can attribute it to one of those two drugs, then I'll drop one of them. So what's this patient's current situation? So she's just received her third cycle of carboplatin pemetrexid and is feeling well. Her breathing's better. Her energy's good. She's able to stay active. So let's talk about another case from your practice. Your first patient had advanced adenocarcinoma. How about this 72-year-old lady diagnosed a year ago with metastatic squamous cell cancer? She had a heavy smoking history and presented with cough and some shortness of breath and was found to have a pretty large mass in her left lung, adenopathy, and had a couple of other lung nodules as well. Not the most robust person, but still able to get out and around, did her own shopping, 
and so was treated with her outside oncologist with a platinum doublet. And when I'm facing a patient like that, I really like a platinum with gemcitabine. I think that's pretty well tolerated. But with the availability of the NAB paclitaxel, I've also found that to be pretty well tolerated. And so I try to choose between those two in discussions with the patient. What did this patient receive initially? She had carboplatin and gemcitabine. And how had she done on that? She did pretty well. She actually tolerated it quite well and had, I don't think it was quite a partial response, but it was a good minor response. Her breathing was good. And she actually then went on a chemotherapy holiday after completing, I think she got through six cycles. I will think about maintenance with gemcitabine, but the data there is is definitely softer than the data that we have for maintenance with pemetrexid. So continuation maintenance with gemcitabine is doable. There are a couple of older trials showing that that was beneficial. The newer trials have been mixed, but all of them have had issues either with poor performance status patients or smaller numbers. And so the data is certainly not as strong, but I think it's a reasonable approach. But in this case, it wasn't done, and she was on a chemo holiday. Could I just ask how she did on the gem and carbo initially, any side effects or tolerability issues? She did have to have delays a couple of times where her treatment, instead of being given on the sort of day one, day eight, or her oncologist was doing the day one and day eight as opposed to day one, eight, and 15 regimen. I found that with carboplatin gemcitabine, day one, both drugs, day eight, gem alone, day 15, skip, and then repeat every three weeks is much better tolerated than trying to get that day 15 gem alone. I think most folks, their counts just don't hold up for that. You mentioned using other agents combined with carbo, NAB paclitaxel. We know from our surveys, a lot of people just use regular paclitaxel. What are the tolerability issues with those two regimens, and how do you compare them? Well, the advantage of gemcitabine is it is harder on the blood counts. That's the downside to it. And fatigue can be an issue. Not a lot of nausea, vomiting, no risk of having any allergic reactions to the cremophore like you would with a regular taxane. You don't have alopecia. And for a lot of people, though, that's a appearance issue. It's a how do you face the world living with cancer issue. So for a lot of people, if they've kept their hair, outward appearances are that they're fine. And then they don't have to go explain to everybody they meet, oh, yeah, I have cancer because they can hide it. And so for some people, that's important. Other people, less so. Because it's a weekly scheduling with the gemcitabine, you've got some flexibility if they do start having count issues. And so I've just found it's pretty well tolerated. With the taxanes, also in general, people do pretty well with it. I mean, we do run the risk with regular paclitaxel of having an allergic reaction to the cremophore. You don't get that with the NAB paclitaxel. That's one of its major advantages. With the taxane, you do run into risks of neuropathy. So that's one of the advantages of gemcitabine. That's a very, very low chance of neuropathy, much higher with the taxanes. And as people are older or if they have any underlying diabetes, that becomes more of a risk. The count issues with both, a little bit less with the taxanes and with the gemcitabine. So in general, I've had patients tolerate either of those regimens quite well. And I've had a few patients have difficulties with either of those. I think it's just a discussion, an individual decision with the oncologist and the patient, but trying to pick between those. So on the carbogem, she sounds like she did pretty well. Then she goes on a holiday off treatment. Then what? So then she came to see me. And at the time, her cancer had been starting to grow back. It wasn't a lot of growth, 
she was relatively asymptomatic, but came in to meet with me and talk about what were the options for her to go on to now as a second-line treatment. It had been a few months since she'd stopped her therapy. And one of the main reasons she came to see me was to look into the checkpoint inhibitor trials. And there are a lot of those focused in second-line, many of them open for second-line squamous. And so that's what she came to talk about. So I know that she actually wasn't able to enter a trial on one of these checkpoint inhibitors, but I'm curious how you explain to patients what these agents are and why we test tumors for PD-1 nowadays. That's a great question, Neil. So I talk with patients about the fact that all of us are having cells going through mutations at any time that could lead to cancer if they weren't basically killed off by our immune system. And so our immune system is constantly going through surveillance, looking for anything that might be a cancer, and then killing it. But that unfortunately, people who have ended up with a cancer, it means that the immune system wasn't able to fully fight off their disease. And so the point of the checkpoint inhibitors is to boost up the immune system to get it to attack the cancer more efficiently. And for the ones who are more biologically minded, we talk about this whole back and forth between the immune system and regulation of it, that cancers are releasing different proteins into the surrounding area, and that those are going to be processed and then shown to the immune system to say, okay, this is a piece of the cancer, this might be something that's foreign. But the body has ways of telling the immune cells, this is normal self or not, the sort of on and off of the immune regulation. And that what the checkpoint inhibitors are doing is removing one of those off switches. And that by taking away that off switch, it's going to increase the likelihood of the immune system going after something that's presented in one of those proteins. In that context, I tell them that the downside is that you might end up having more autoimmune disease where the body starts recognizing itself and starts attacking something that's not supposed to. But in general, that doesn't happen so much. And so the main thing that happens is it's able to attack the cancer better. And then I talk about the fact that that on-off switch is this PD-1, PD-L1 interaction, and that some tumors are using that PD-L1 as a way to evade the immune system. And so for those tumors, if you block that interaction, then it's going to have a much bigger impact. But then I also say it's far more complicated than that, because it is, and that even with this blockade, you still end up having cancers that continue to grow, and that with the drugs and the different ways of looking at pdl one some of the assays only find pdl one 30% of the time, others of them find it 80% of the time. The responses to all of these drugs have been somewhere in that 30% range, maybe higher if you do fit the strict definitions by some of the companies. And yet all of them also show responses, even when you're PDL1 negative, and that PDL1 is dynamic. So it's going to go up and down over time. So really to me, I don't think we have a good test yet. And of course, these checkpoint inhibitors really have come in now in terms of melanoma, renal cell cancer, but now a whole bunch of other tumors. And as you mentioned, it seems like not necessarily the majority will respond, but I guess the one thing that's so encouraging is how long the responses occur for. So there are some reports of longer-term responders, which are encouraging. If you look at the tails on the curves, the numbers of patients out that far aren't that high yet. So I'm still very, very hopeful about them also, but I also wonder if the drugs by themselves are really going to be the answer. I think we're probably going to need to figure out a way to 
get the immune system kicked up even further. And so combination therapies are particularly intriguing. Immune combination therapies are particularly intriguing. Trying to figure out what a given tumor is doing to continue to evade the immune system, even when you've knocked out the checkpoint pathway there. So we've made the first steps in, but I don't think we're really quite there yet. Incidentally, do you feel the same way, for example, about melanoma or when you talk about, you know, I guess a little bit of uncertainty in terms of the duration that it's less certain with lung cancer? Or is this true in general, do you think? Oh, I think in melanoma, that's a different disease. We've had other immune modulatory drugs that have worked beautifully in a subset of melanoma patients, even, you know, the point where you could say cure. We haven't yet seen that in lung cancer. I know that there are a handful of lung cancer patients out there who have done phenomenally well with checkpoint inhibitors to the point where they have no evidence of disease right now, but it's a small number of patients. And I'd like to see us getting to a point where that's a much larger group. And I don't know that any of the checkpoint inhibitors that exist today by themselves are going to be enough to give us a large number in that setting. But the hope is that that's leading the way to better understanding of how to get the immune system to fight cancers more directly. So let's finish out talking about your patient with the ALK rearrangement. So I picked a patient I actually just saw yesterday, and she's a lovely Latina woman who is 51 years old now. And she was actually initially diagnosed back in 2007. So at that time, nobody knew she had an ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer because nobody knew about ALK-positive lung cancer. That was the year it was just being discovered. And so when she was first diagnosed, she was started on carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, commonly used triplet back at that time, still is today. Non-smoker? She's a non-smoker, and at the time she was in her late 40s, mid-40s, actually. And she had adenocarcinoma. Adenocarcinoma with lung-only involvement, but diffuse lung involvement. In 2007, I think the EGFR mutation was discovered around 2004. Was she tested for that? She was, and she did not have an EGFR mutation. So she was on carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, got four cycles, and then was on bevacizumab maintenance for three years. Wow. That's a long time. How how was that? What was it like for her during that time? So she felt well. She was busy. She works. She's got children who are grown now, but she's still very involved in their lives. And so she was doing very well. And eventually, though, her tumor started to regrow. It was still before ALK testing was being done routinely. And so she went with standard second-line therapy, which was single-agent pemetrexid. And so that was started in 2010, actually early 2011, and continued and continued and continued. But... During that time, ALK testing became available. So she was tested for ALK and was found to have an ALK translocation. But just to clarify, though, how long was she on the pemetrexid? Three years. Wow. And how did she do on that? Very, very well. So she would have a little bit of nausea for a day and then back to feeling fine and staying active. So, you know, it's interesting. She had this long period on the BEV and long period on the PEM. And, you know, we have heard about the issues of how people do with ALK rearrangements on chemo, specifically PEM, and also more recently, BEV, more related to EGFR mutations. I don't know if we know right now in terms of ALK, but what do we know about, for example, PEM in terms of patients with ALK? 
So we know that patients who have ALK translocations, they seem to be more sensitive to pemetrexid. So in the second line trial with the ALK inhibitor crizotinib, it was compared head to head with second line chemotherapy and patients were either on docetaxel or on pemetrexid. And in that trial, the crizotinib was superior from a progression-free survival standpoint to both docetaxel and pemetrexid, but the pemetrexid was better than docetaxel in the ALK-positive patients. And there have been a number of other publications looking at that. So we know that pemetrexid works particularly well in ALK-positive patients. And we actually did a little case series from Stanford looking at the ROS1 translocated patients and found the same thing, that pemetrexid seems to work very well in that group also. So this lady's now going to receive crizotinib, but there's also another ALK inhibitor just approved by the FDA, seritinib, out there. Can you talk about these agents? Yes. So seritinib is also an option for her. At this time, seritinib is only approved for patients who have already had crizotinib. Seritinib doesn't cause the lower extremity edema. That's great. It can be a little bit of a challenge for the GI toxicity, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, Again, you can get through that pretty well. A lot of patients will have that dosed at night. That's a once-a-day drug as opposed to twice a day for crizotinib. And so with antiemetics, sort of a pre-dose antiemetic and then taking it at night, the patients who've had those nausea, vomiting issues tend to do well. What do we know about efficacy of crizotinib and seritinib? So we know that crizotinib has a response rate of about 60% for patients with ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer. We know that the average duration of response is somewhere in the 7 to 10 months range, but of course we've all seen patients where it's worked longer than that or less time than that. We now know, there was just a New England Journal publication, that patients treated with crizotinib have a better response and better progression-free survival compared to first-line platinum doublet chemotherapy with pemetrexid. But again, that duration of response is somewhat under a year. What we know about with the newer drugs is that with seritinib and pretty much with any of the new ALK drugs that have been evaluated, the response rate of that drug after patients have been on crizotinib and it stopped working is about 60%. So we've got great second-line drugs. With seritinib in particular, there was a study where patients received seritinib, patients with ALK-positive lung cancer received seritinib either as a first-line drug or after they'd already had crizotinib. The response rate was the same in both settings, about 60%, but the progression-free survival was longer for patients who had not previously had crizotinib. And so then that brings up the question, well, are we better off starting with seritinib, or are we better giving crizotinib and then switching to seritinib? What's going to be the longest time? And we don't know that yet. So there's a bunch of studies kind of looking at those particular questions with seritinib, with electinib, you know, with the other ALK inhibitors as well. So you were talking about the issue of the trial comparing seritinib to chemotherapy, and that kind of is a theme that seems to be emerging in pulmonary oncology of using targeted therapy up front rather than chemotherapy. What about patients who are sick and they need a response? Does a response occur more quickly with chemo? So usually the responses are faster with the targeted drug. So if a patient is known to have an EGFR mutation in their tumor or ALK translocation in their tumor, if you know that information before you've started therapy and the patient's really sick, you know exactly what to do. Because patients who are very sick 
are going to tolerate those oral medications better, and they're going to respond faster. So in that setting, we know what to do. Where it's difficult is if the patient's very, very sick, and you don't yet have those results back. If you feel like they can't tolerate chemotherapy, then the temptation is going to be, oh, we should just give the targeted drug if they fit a quote-unquote profile. But the problem is the profile isn't the mutation. And if you give a patient a targeted drug and they don't have that target, it's completely useless. So if you are in a situation where it's treat now or there's no hope for the patient, if you can't get those results back, you're kind of stuck. And the chemotherapy is the right choice if the patient can tolerate it, because regardless of the mutation that the patient has or doesn't have, the chemotherapy has some chance of working. But if the patient can't tolerate chemotherapy, the patient can't tolerate chemotherapy. How long does it take to get these results? You know, I think about breast cancer. We were just in the San Antonio breast cancer meeting, and nobody would think of giving systemic therapy until they had a HER2 test and an ER. Are we getting there with lung cancer? I think we are. It is not appropriate for patients to receive an EGFR-targeted drug or an ALK-targeted drug first line without knowing that they have the appropriate mutation. And we should be able to get the results back within two weeks. There are variabilities that go into that, but that should be the target. I'd really like to see that moving to one week, but we're not quite at that point. In terms of side effect issues with ALK inhibitors or drugs used to treat people with ALK rearrangements, a couple that we've heard about are visual changes and also gonadal insufficiency in men. Is this seen commonly? Is it seen with all these drugs? What's your experience? So... The visual changes are mostly related to crizotinib. They're not actual damage to the eye. It's just patients see shadows that follow them. And so as long as they know that's a toxicity of the drug, people adjust to it and it doesn't cause any significant issues. The hypogonadism is something that is reported. Patients do present with fatigue and other symptoms. So it's something that can be monitored. And some patients do need, say, testosterone replacement. I haven't seen as much information about that with drugs other than crizotinib. It's not something I've noticed in my patients who are on the seritinib, but it's something that people do need to be aware of and talk about with their patients.